This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Matt Woodley and is part five of our summer series, Growing Together in God's Household. So I want to start with a little survey this morning, okay? A little poll. Um, I'm not going to ask you about politics, but I just want to ask if anybody, raise your hand if you were born in the state of Illinois. Okay, now keep your hand up, okay? Now we'll add to this if you are currently a resident of the state of Illinois. Okay, good, a lot of you. Okay, you can put your hands down now. So um, I just want to let you know you are all winners today. You have won a contest. Uh, What is that contest? Well, actually, out of all 50 states in the United States, the state of Illinois comes in third, and you all helped us get to third place. That's like a bronze medal in what? Well, in the total number of public corruption cases by state, (laughs) Illinois ranks third behind New York and California. Of course, if you come from Chicago, you can add some bonus points to that, okay, because we all know what's going on down there, okay. So, you know, I just often think, why is my mind so quick to associate leadership with mistrust, leadership with cynicism? It was a poll that was taken recently, and 70% of the Americans surveyed said they agree with the statement, we have a leadership crisis in this country. So what's missing? Well, I want to propose that really we can talk about what's missing with one single word. What leaders need and what leadership needs and what we need to do if we want to be leaders, it's summed up in one word. And the word is integrity. Integrity. Integrity means a sense of wholeness or soundness or consistency or if you want a fancy word, congruency that radiates out from the core of who you are. That's what integrity means. Now, in this passage that you heard from 1 Timothy, which is on page 9, and I want to invite you to turn there if you want to follow along because we're going to flip back and forth between page 9 and page 12. But this, this list this was, was originally written from a man named the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to a man named Timothy, who's a young leader in the church, young pastor, is his being mentored by Paul. And he wrote this list to Timothy to say, this is sort of a checklist of the qualities, the virtues that you look for in a leader in the church. And... These are the things that should, these things together paint a picture of integrity. Now, I just want to say that that's the original context, and we're going to kind of keep one foot there, but then we're also going to kind of like zoom out into a broader application and say, well, if these are the qualifications for a leader, a church leader, maybe a specific role of some kind, but if you look through this list, I think... Why wouldn't all of us as Christians, no matter what our role is, no matter what our particular position is, why wouldn't all of us want these things in our life? Like, why wouldn't all of us want to be more gentle? Why wouldn't all of us want to be more hospitable? Why wouldn't all of us want to be um, more able to manage our household if we're mothers and fathers? So these things apply to all of us. So this is a picture of integrity. Now notice how Paul begins in verse 1. He says, if anyone... If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. There's no cynicism about leadership. There's no cynicism about leaders. 
It's a good thing. If you want to be a leader in the church, if you want to be a leader for Christ in society, if you want to be a leader for Christ at school or in your workplace or in your community or on your athletic team or whatever, that's a good thing. Paul says, go for it. Aspire to it. It's a worthy goal. But then he says, notice a church leader, and again, we're going to kind of do zoom in on the church leaders, but then zoom out for all of us that follow Jesus, is must be someone whose life is above reproach, in verse 2 he says. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that you're absolutely faultless, you're sinless, you don't have any problems in your life, there's no gaps in your integrity? No, being above reproach means that your life, your outward expression of your life is increasingly becoming consistent with your core beliefs as a, as a Christian. So we all have integrity gaps. But is your life moving to become so that it's truly like there is no gaps? Does it match what you say? See, we see this all the time. If somebody's life doesn't match their role or their position or their beliefs, it's really outrageous. So for instance, uh, a police officer who consistently breaks the law, we don't like that. That's outrageous. Or you, let's say a nutritionist that continually binges on junk food, you know, that's just, that doesn't make sense. Or let's say a soccer player that doesn't want to kick the ball ever, you know, these are just things, they don't match the person, what their role is. So what does integrity look like? Well, this is a picture. I'm actually going to call it, I'm going to call it an integrity audit. It's not an original, I didn't come up with that, but I'm going to use it, integrity audit. And if you turn over to page 12, this is the integrity audit that comes from these, this passage. So an audit, people are in business, you're in finances, you know that every year you have to open your books to an outside auditor and the auditor looks at your books and looks at your practices and looks at your finances and says, this is up to snuff or this is not up to snuff. And here's the gaps where you need to work on your different areas of your life. Now, I have a friend named Ann in this church, and I talked to her about this because she's been in finances most of her life, and she said, yeah, audits are hard because you're going really, to get scrutinized. But she said, ultimately, audits are really good because they show where you need to grow. So if you look at it that way, she says, you need to, and this is the quote she gave me, you need to learn to embrace the audit. So I want us to embrace the audit this morning, okay? I don't want you to be ashamed because ultimately, you're not taking, if you're a Christian, you're not taking this audit by yourself. You're taking it with Jesus. And like Jesus is like sitting down with you and he's like, let's go through a few things, okay? And let's look at a few things. And Jesus, as we found out in 1 Timothy 1, is enormously merciful when we least expect it. So without further ado, here's the audit. Question number one. And you might think this is a strange place to start, but this is where the text starts. Am I a person of sexual integrity, faithfulness in marriage, or fruitfulness in singleness? And, and by the way, let me just say, as we're going through this list, there's like nine questions. We may not cover them all, but you may, you may be tempted to think, wow, I'm really overwhelmed. I got like five of them, six of them, seven of them. Some of you might have nine of them, you know? So it's like, here's what I want you to do, really encourage you to do. Just focus on one. Focus, as we go through this, focus on one area where you can tell the Lord, yeah, you got me, Lord. There's a big gap. I need to work on that. I need your help. I need your grace. So we all have that, as we'll see as we go through that. Okay, so am I a person of sexual integrity, faithfulness in marriage, or fruitfulness and singleness? 
Literally, in uh, verse 2, when Paul says that a husband, this leader, who's a husband in this case, must be faithful to his wife, it literally means he's a one-woman husband. So the question is, if you're married, and I'll get to singles in a minute, if you're married, is your affection focused on your spouse? Or is it scattered all over the place? And is it focused in a permanent, lifelong commitment? You know, when I was at Stony Brook, I was doing chaplaincy work at Stony Brook Hospital, and part of my job was to visit people that were basically not going to wake up and that were there to die. And so I would go visit these people, and it was excruciatingly hard. But I saw this like a half dozen times. I'd see, like, for instance, I'd see this, this woman who's, like, in her 80s, and she's not going to wake up, and her husband, who's, like, this really tough World War II veteran with his World War II jacket, he would walk in there every single day, and he would sit by her, and he would take care of her, and he would hold her hand, and he would talk to her like he could hear it, and I was watching this guy, and it's like, it just hit me. This is what husbands do. This guy is like, he's a role model. He's like a mentor. This is what husbands do, and this is what spouses do for each other. Now, if you're single, the same question applies because there's not two, two classes of Christians, married people, who are kind of in a first class and singles who are in a second class. Jesus changed all that. Both marrieds and singles are important to the kingdom of God and have a calling. So if you're single, are you fruitful in your singleness? Are you not waiting around for the magic person that's going to solve all your problems? Are you not fantasizing? Are you not having sexual intercourse with somebody that you're not married to? Those are the questions you need to ask as a single person. Now, let me just speak really pastorally. For some people, because all of us, Jesus said in the gospel reading, to take up your cross and follow me. And for, I would say for almost everybody here, being faithful sexually to the Bible's teaching is a cross to bear. So I would say for maybe over here, like 10% of the people, it's, it's easy. And then like 80% of the people, it's hard. And then like 10% of the people, it's really hard. I mean, a really heavy cross to bear. So let me just ask, as a church family, can we support people for whom it's hard and then really hard. Some people really do have it harder than other people. I mean, it's the same calling, but some people it's really hard, and it can be really lonely. And will we walk beside them throughout this and admit that it's hard and admit that we struggle and admit that we need God's grace and we need support and we need accountability? So that's the first question. Second question is, do I practice hospitality? And that was the second thing on Paul's list. Do you, do you practice hospitality? Literally, hospitality meant the love of the stranger. It's opening your life. It's opening your home. It's opening your schedule. It's opening your, uh, maybe a, having a meal or opening your, just your affection to somebody that's a stranger. You know, we, I've gotten to know a lot of African friends, friends from Africa over the last few years, and you know what? We don't do this as well as our African friends, right, Father William? <laughs> so I'll tell you about my friend Jean Vier, who's sitting here in church today. 
So he tells me, we're talking about hospitality. And he said, what is like African hospitality? He said, well, it's like this. And he tells me a story like this. He says, let's say I invite you to dinner. And you come to dinner. I just said, I just invite you for dinner. But you come with just not yourself. You come with five people or eight people or ten people. And then you show up at the door and you say, I'm here for dinner. You go, well, there's ten people here. Well, that's just come on in. And then we want to stay for dinner. And then we want to spend the night. And then we might want to spend a week with you. You know, and it's like, I'm like, Jean Vier, that's really hard for us. What if we just said, I, I'm grumpy. I don't want you to stay here. And he said, oh, you would be a bad man to do that. <laughs> be a very bad man. You know, I don't expect us to practice hospitality like our African friends. Maybe we're not going to achieve that level. But can we open our heart and our home to people who need us? I'm sorry, that was the third question. The second question is this, do I tend my inner life? The word for inner life that I'm talking about there is it shows up when Paul says in verse, he says in verse two that this leader must um, exercise self-control. Literally, that, that, the original Greek word is a word that referred to the ordering of the inner life from which your outer life flows. Now, that's really kind of countercultural because most of us know we have an outer life, right? I mean, you're busy, you're doing things, people see you, you're working, you put on your game face, you put on your church face, you put on your public face. You post things on Facebook, which is always good, always good projection of your outer life. But... According to the Bible, we also have an inner life. Think of it like a spring, a spring of water. Everything in you, within you, and that the real you that comes out of you comes from that inner spring. So how do you care for that inner spring? How does prayer, how does reading the Bible, how does worship, how does receiving the Lord's Supper make that spring flow better and deeper or richer? Do you tend your inner life? Question number four, and remember, as we go through this list, try to really just focus on one by the time we get done. Do I control my alcohol intake? And you're thinking, wow, that one's on the list? That's a little picky and a little personal and a little petty. Well, actually, where it says there that he's not a heavy drinker, it literally means does not sit long with wine. Um, and if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the Bible, believe the U.S. Center for Disease Control, our CDC, okay? According to them, there's been like a huge, they call it an epidemic spike in binge drinking. It's become a problem in our culture, binge drinking. Are, is your alcohol intake, is it, okay, maybe you're not an alcoholic, Maybe you are, but you just don't admit it. Or maybe you're just buzzed too often. And the buzz just prevents you from really responding to people in your life or situations in your life. Are you, is your alcohol control, is your alcohol intake under control? Now, this can cause a lot of shame. I had a guy come up to me after the first service and he said, I really have a problem with that. Now, if you're a Christian, you can admit all kinds of things about yourself where you don't want to be, that you struggle with, because Christ is your Savior, and you belong to the church, and we're a hospital for sinners. We're not just the company of the saints. We're a hospital for sinners. So we can say, I struggle with this, and I need help with this. 
Number five, and I'm, am I growing in gentleness rather than anger? There's, two, there's one positive word in this text for gentleness. It's the word gentle. It just means sort of a, it literally means a sweet reasonableness. So you can disagree with somebody that's gentle, and they might have, or the gentle person might disagree with you, might have really strong opinions, really passionate about something, but they're not like on edge. They're not like angry. They're not reacting. The two negative words here are the words, he must not be violent and he must not be quarrelsome. This is a person who's on edge. They're just, they're wound tight. They're ready to pop. You know, they have, they have a lot of anger and it comes out in words or it comes out maybe in uh, physical violence or it comes out with use of gun violence, which has become a prevalent way to solve issues in our, in our culture today. Now, if you're not gentle, if you need to grow in gentleness, here's the good news. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means we can ask the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me and help me to become more gentle. I know I'm not, so help me. Give me a spirit of gentleness. Question number six, am I getting free from greed? The word here literally is a lover of money, an inordinate attachment to money. This is a tough one, isn't it? I mean, it's a tough one for me. It's not just that you want money. It's just that you want it too much and you want to hold on to it too much. Are you getting free from that? Number seven, especially for parents, do I guide my own household well? So verse four says, this leader must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. So again, let's sort of zero in there, but then let's kind of back up and look at every Christian parent. The word manage literally means, it means to lead, and it combines two concepts, to rule and to care at the same time. So if you're a mother, you're a father, you rule your house. Now if that sounds like scary, well think of this. Your children rule the house. That's not good, so I think it's much better that you rule. Think of the schools rule your children, or the government rules your children. Who's the best person to rule your children? You are, as parents. Rule, but remember, it's rule and care at the same time. And as my, one of my mentors, um, Doug, reminds me, he, he really challenged me. He said, Matt, you know, one of your most important roles now is you still, you still lead your children. You're still called to lead. You grow, keep growing as a leader, but you're also called to give input into your grandchildren. That's part of, that's a really valuable role. Number eight, am I on the long road to spiritual growth? Verse six says a church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. The word pride, there's a really interesting word. It literally means to cloud, like with smoke. So imagine you're sitting around a, a campfire, and it got this kind of green wood, and it's all smoky, and the, the wind picks up, and it's blowing right in your face, and it's like stinging your eyes, and you can't see anything. You can't see straight. That's the picture for this word. It literally means somebody who thinks they're further ahead on the spiritual life than they really are. I mean, I've been there. Maybe you've been there. 
you think you're further along than you really are. It's a long road to spiritual growth. Many years, many failures, many setbacks. But are you committed to that long road and say, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me get on that long road, not the shortcut road, because that just doesn't exist. Help me get and stay on the long road to spiritual transformation. And number nine, do, Christ, do non-Christians think well of me? Verse seven, also people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. How do people that don't know Christ, what do they think about you? You know, I always think this is just sort of my... Um, sort of my goal in life that I don't always achieve, but I really want to achieve. And, and I think it's a goal for all of us. So let's say there's a person that doesn't know Jesus, and they're actually kind of hostile to Christian faith. My goal is that they would say, I think Christians, well, not forever that they would say this, but they would start with, Christians are narrow-minded, they're judgmental, they're bigoted, they're crazy, they're nuts, they're dangerous. But then I know that person who's a Christian. And he's not that way. And she's not that way. And I'm confused now. So my goal is, is that we would confuse people, you know, <laughs> in that sort of way. That they would go, that's not what I thought, how I thought a Christian would act. Is that the way non-Christians think of you? You know, again, here's what I encourage you to do. Just think of one area, one area, and where you just need to talk to the Lord, and the, you think the Lord wants to talk to you, and I'm going to even do something a little scary. Um, I'm just going to actually stop talking for a minute, and just let you maybe talk to the Lord for a minute, okay? And then I'll come back, okay? So let's just have a moment of silent prayer, to, so you can think about one thing where the Lord needs to work with you. I said we can embrace the audit because of Jesus. We don't have to fear the audit. Because when you're loved, when you're forgiven, when he's ready to show you mercy, when he's not going to judge you, you don't have to run away in shame. You can, the gaps in your integrity, the gaps in my integrity can actually make me move towards Jesus, not away from him. And let me just close with this. Living with integrity is a beautiful, is really living a beautiful life. Growing in integrity is living a beautiful life that can impact people around you for generations. And maybe you're thinking today, wow, I got some really big gaps. Well, let me just say, you can start today over with Jesus, you can start again today, and you can pursue integrity, pursue that beautiful life. No matter where you've been, you can start today. 
You know, one of my heroes and mentors is a, a guy named John Stott, who's a guy I never met in my life. He died a few years ago. He was a single guy his whole life, um, Christian leader who impacted and mentored hundreds of young Christian men and women around the world. He had like almost in every country, he had people he was mentoring and pouring his life into. And to me, he just models the beautiful life and integrity. And let me just tell you one story that exemplifies this. So about 45 years ago, there was a guy, a young kid, 16-year-old kid living in, uh, on the outskirts north of Oaxaca, Mexico, which is about a three and a half hour drive south of Mexico City. Saul Cruz was 16 years old. He picked up a book in Spanish called Basic Christianity, written by John Stott. He read the book, and he became a Christian. And he said, I must meet John Stott. I have to meet him. I have to tell him I read this book. I have to tell him I became a Christian. And so somehow he heard through the grapevine that John Stott was going to be in Mexico City. So he walked with, he had a he had a little bag of apples, and he walked three days and three nights in the rain and in the mud to get to Mexico City and to hear John Stott. So he asked around. He figured out where John Stott was preaching, and he sat, and he listened to John Stott. He understood absolutely nothing he was talking about. But after he went up to John Stott, and he said, here's this, this 16-year-old kid with a little bag of apples. He's like, I, 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 Mr. Stott, Mr. Stott, I, I must talk to you. I must talk to you. And all the people, his little entourage around John Stott, go, ah, he's, come on, Mr. Stott's busy. Mr. Stott's going to go to dinner now. He's had a long day. And John Stott looks at him and says, have you had anything to eat? He says, no, no, I'm, I had my apples. He said, well, no, why don't you come? We're gonna, he's going to come and eat with us. So he ate with them and really didn't have a chance to talk to John Stott. And then, uh, and then afterwards, John Stott said, do you have any place to stay tonight? He said, no, I just, I've been walking for the last three days and three nights. I just wanted to get here, but I didn't have a plan beyond that. And so, uh, and John Stott said, well, you stay where I'm staying. You'll stay where I'm staying. He had a host family that was putting him up. He said, you stay with us. So that night, Saul went to bed and just utterly exhausted, just took off all his muddy clothes and his muddy boots and put them beside his bed. And he got up the next morning started to put his boots on and he realized his boots are like immaculately clean, like they're just brand new boots. And so he went to the housekeeper of this family and said, auntie, did you clean my boots? No, I didn't clean your boots. And then he went to the woman, the, host, the hostess and said, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, did you clean my boots? No, I didn't clean your boots. And then he goes to John Stott and he says, John Stott, the strangest thing happened. I got up this morning and did you clean my boots, Uncle John? Hmm, that is interesting. I, they got clean just like that? He goes, no, did you clean my boots? Shh. Promise not to tell anybody until after I die that I cleaned your boots, which Saul kept that vow until John Stott died. And then when I visited Saul in 2008 in Mexico City, he told me this story. So John Stott wound up mentoring Saul for 45 years, walked beside him. Saul got married to a beautiful woman named Pilar. They had children. Saul came to the United States, got a PhD in psychology. He went back to Mexico City in Oaxaca, and he started starting these community centers where they provided food 
and literacy and job training and Bible classes and discipleship and um, evangelism, these community centers throughout in the poor sections of Mexico City and Oaxaca. That's what he did with his life. John Stott had an impact on Saul. Saul had an impact on hundreds. The life of integrity is a beautiful life. So let me ask you, I mean, as a younger man, I was not necessarily clear about these questions, but I'm getting really clear about these questions. Is integrity the pursuit of your life? Is that your goal? You know, when the rest of the world goes crazy, starts losing their integrity, when people that call stuff that's just madness and they call it like normalcy, and when normalcy they call madness, can you hold on to your integrity? Can you say, Lord Jesus, I want to walk with integrity. It's a beautiful life. Make it your life ambition. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.